So we've begun a series for the summer, seeking God's answers to hard questions that might be in the Bible. And we asked the congregation to let us know what questions you might have. I think a couple of people just tried to think what the most complicated and toughest subjects that there are and just threw them out there at us, thinking that uh, that'd give us something to keep us busy for the summer. And uh, But... Uh, Last week, Bob preached on uh, seeking God's answers to hard questions about homosexuality, and uh, I have a a topic today that uh, I will be speaking on in that same series. And this topic is one that I would say in my, my understanding of world history and, and, and seeing the uh, the sinfulness of man at work in my lifetime, that I would say that this message or this topic would be one of the worst atrocities that's been carried out in human history. I'm not speaking of the estimated 50 million Protestants that were persecuted and many of them killed during the 16th century Reformation period that kind of brought a lot of us into uh, the churches that we're into today, or the 11 million non-combatants killed by Nazi Germany during World War II, or even the 3 million people that were killed by Stalin in the Soviet Union, or any number of other Great slaughters, if you will, that took place in history. Uh, you know, many of us have have uh, gone through various history classes and seen what war and 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 the evil of man can accomplish in their periods of time. Millions of people have been killed, and while these are all indeed atrocities, the one that I want to speak on today. I think is the most shameful and remains frequently in our public arena today in our country through government legislatures and court cases that continually keep coming up. According to the organization National Right to Life, it's estimated that over 60 million children have been aborted in the United States since the U.S. Supreme Court forced their court decision in 1973 of Roe v. Wade on the American society. The numbers have not always been reported after it became legal to do abortions. And for most of that time, since the 73 court decision, a lot of the reporting was voluntary. So if they're telling us over 60 million children that was probably a very low number. Many more have probably died due to abortion. (coughs) Excuse me. The sad thing is that even the loss of these children, it was typically in the pursuit to push forward a, an active feminist movement or a pro-choice agenda, not even for the purpose of necessarily thinking what is best for the 
child or the mother in the pregnancy, but that the main goal of a couple movements that have been active in, in Western civilization and in our country has been using this as one of their primary purposes and goals. <coughs> Excuse me. If we look at 60 million children, that would total to almost 1 million children a year who have lost their lives in the U.S. alone. The World Health Organization says that an average of 56 million abortions occur worldwide each year between the years 2010 and 2014. If you add the last four years to this figure, that would be over 504 million children that have been killed. One statistic I recently read says that there are 23 million missing baby girls around the world from the years 1970 until 2017 that was due to sex-selective abortions. These children are most mostly missing from the countries of India and China that have been in a very progressive uh, policy of, of trying to have children that are or boys, males. So when I use the word atrocity to describe the senseless, brutal, heartless slaughter of children, that's exactly what it is. An online dictionary that I referred to defined atrocity as an extremely wicked or cruel act, typically one involving physical violence or injury. And that's what we have. That's what's taking place. One of the prominent claims of the pro-choice movement in America is that it's the woman's choice on what happens to her body. She gets to decide. So if she decides to end a pregnancy... That's her decision only. It's amazing that they do not address the choice of the child when they and, and their choice of what they want to do with their bodies. <coughs> Excuse me a second. About two days ago I started coming down with something and it's right in my throat. <coughs> Who worries about the the unborn child? You would think it would be the mother, but they obviously don't. Why is the mother's life more precious than the child's in these decisions? Why was that such an easy decision to make, that the woman would be able to make that call? I can tell you that according to Scriptures, that both of their lives are equally precious to God, the mother and the child. I believe that scriptures teach very clearly that God values all human life and that he is the creator of all things, including human beings. This includes men, women, and children. 
I also believe that scriptures are very clear about the sin of murder and that this would apply to killing children in the womb. But I hope not to make this a message of just pointing out that Scripture says this is a sin and is wrong. I want to be able to address the fact that if we have 60 million abortions in the United States since 1973, that the church in America, possibly even here, have people that have been affected by abortions. Maybe having had an abortion themselves earlier in their life. I know that there are some places where you could go that you might have people attending church and calling themselves Christians that are involved in the abortion industry. It would be naive of us to think that it's not possible that the the church as a whole does not have influences of the abortion decision of 1973. So I want to point out what Scripture says about abortion and about murder, which should be pretty consistently accepted, I would think, from most people here. But I also want to address for those who may have been touched by the loss of a child through abortion in the past and offer you the hope and grace and peace and healing that can only come from Jesus. And that even though that may have happened in your past, that God offers forgiveness for that. And then I'd like to kind of wrap up at the end with making some suggestions for the rest of us that may be here, not in those two categories, and be involved in in figuring out ways that we might be active in stopping abortions from continuing to be conducted in this country and maybe in the world. A few years ago, we rewrote the church statement of faith and bylaws and made a statement concerning sanctity of life. It reads, God created all people in his image, giving dignity and value to every, every single human life despite its stage of development. God alone is the Lord of life from its beginning to its end. We thought that it was very important as a church and as the leaders of this church that we took a clear stand and more importantly to acknowledge what God has already said in his word about human life. Turn to the first book of the Bible, Genesis in chapter 1 in your Bibles. We won't be uh, putting them up because I'm up here today. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says, So God created man in his image, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Last week, Bob spoke on this passage a little bit in his sermon. So I won't spend a lot of time on it. But in Genesis 1, we have detailed for us that in the beginning, 
God created a world that was more than adequate for his creatures to live in. In fact, he said upon completing his work and prior to creating man, humans, that it was good. He put a seal of approval on it, if you will. Then he created man, a human being, who was like no other earthly creation that he had created. We know this because it says that he was made in his image, in God's image. No other part of creation was was that said about. Men and women are the most important part of creation. In John MacArthur's study Bible that I frequently frequently use when I'm preparing these sermons, there's a note on this passage that states, this defined man's unique relations to God. Man is a living being capable of embodying God's communicable attributes. And these are attributes of God that he shares with human beings, at least in some degree, such as love, and goodness and kindness. That's what that's talking about. Theologian J.I. Packer in his book, Concise Theology, explains that this statement does not clearly define the scope of what is meant here by in our image, but earlier in Genesis chapter 1, Scripture set forth God as a personal, rational, meaning he has intelligence and will and is able to form plans and execute them, creative, competent to control the world he has made, and morally admirable in that all he creates is good. Plainly, God's image will include all of these qualities. In man's rational life, he was like God in that he could reason and had intellect, will, and emotion. And in a moral sense, he was like God because he was good and sinless. Of course, that's before the fall. In Genesis 1.31, it reads, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Not that it was good, but after creating man and adding him to the creation, he said it was very good. Once God finished his creation, He was very pleased with what he created. And notice that he did not differentiate between their gender. He said, they, male and female, are both his image bearers. After the fall in the garden, the first parents, Adam and Eve, began to have children, as God had told them to do, and be fruitful and multiply. They had sons. The first two were Cain and Abel. We know their tragic story. They were different in many ways. Cain was a farmer. I'm sorry, I've got, I put both of them down to the same thing. Abel uh, was a farmer and Cain was a herder, but they were different in personalities and character. So they had different occupations and they were different 
individually with their, their personalities, which all of us who are parents know that with our children. They're very different. Abel was obedient to God in bringing a proper offering, and Cain decided to bring what he wanted. And there's even a question if he brought the best of his flocks. He sinned, and to make matters worse, he was unrepentant. Cain became jealous and angry with his brother, and then in the end killed him. This was the first murder committed in human history. Cain was punished, and as time went on, we can assume that murders continued in human history because God eventually gives Noah directions after the flood in Genesis 9, where he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This meant that any animal or person who killed a person would face capital punishment. Their life would be taken. Why? Because God made man in his own image. He is the image bearer. God gave instructions to the Israelites through Moses after leaving captivity in Egypt when he established laws and the rules that they were to live by which includes Exodus 20, verse 13, that says, You shall not murder. In Psalms 8, 5 through 8, the writer is speaking of humans that are called the Son of Man here and says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. These verses consistently emphasize the value and worth of man in the eyes of God and the tasks that he has given them, who created man in the image and likeness of God to exercise dominion over the rest of creation. So God does not allow for the unlawful taking of a life of a person. Scriptures also have a number of passages that would be more specifically addressing the taking of a child's life. One such would be in 2 Kings chapter 16, where King Ahaz is condemned because he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. And he explains what did that look like. It says that King Ahaz walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, that he even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In chapter 21, another king, Manasseh, is rebuked as he also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and built altars and burned his son as an offering. In Isaiah 57, God, through his prophet Isaiah, accuses the, na- the adulterous, or an idolatrous nation of Israel who, among other sins, slaughtered their children in the valleys. 
In Jeremiah 7, God accuses the nation of Judah of doing great evil in the land. And he says, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called to my, by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Torbeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did I, it come into my mind. God judged the nation for their evil. In Leviticus 20, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, Anyone of the people of Israel or, my, or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people. Because he has given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And in Deuteronomy 18, God warns the nation of Israel that they should not follow in the abominable practices of the nations that they had just finished conquering and pushing out of the promised land. There shall not be found among you, he says, anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. And he calls this an abominable practice. He even explains that this was one of the reasons why the Israelites were given the promised land that was already preoccupied by Canaanites and other nations who were evil and despicable before God and were being punished. And one of these abominable acts was killing their children and their sacrificing them as offerings. While these examples may not be specifically addressing abortion as we know it, I would say that the premise is the same. That the taking of a child's life is forbidden by God. Scriptures call it sin. And that is an abomination to God. Those in the pro-choice movement would have us believe that an unborn child, especially earlier in pregnancy, is just a fetus. That is just a mass of human cells that will eventually become a person, a baby. I actually found a definition online that I thought was interesting. It states a definition for a fetus is an unborn offspring of a mammal, in particular an unborn human baby, more than eight weeks after conception. If they can convince us that early in pregnancy, the child is not a human child. And I think that's what the idea is of calling them a fetus instead. And it would be easier to convince us that aborting a fetus is not the same as aborting a 20-week-old child, for instance, that's in the womb. There's been a lot of recent activity in various states of the United States over the last few years attempting to limit abortions. 
Unfortunately, not all the states have been doing that. Some of them have been actively working on making it even more available. Several of these states have passed laws that would limit an abortion to a time before a heartbeat could be detected. That's kind of the the newest approach, if you will, of, of trying to convince the politicians and the policymakers that this is a life that is being killed, not a mass of cells. And I'd like to show you a short video right now, so give me a second. I think it would be helpful for you. There might be a couple seconds of a of an ad, I'm not positive, but ahead a little bit. So that's five and a half weeks after conception. This is a sonogram that a manufacturer kind of put together this video to show for potential customers. Here's six weeks. I don't know if you saw that on the five and a half weeks. They were pointing out that there was a heartbeat. won't keep backing it up, but they'll do the same thing there, I believe. There's seven weeks. You see the little pulse there, the little heartbeat? Yeah. I think you get the idea. Five and a half weeks, they're able to detect a heartbeat in the child. That definition that I I read offline talked about usually after eight weeks. You know, the problem with medical science is that it's advancing so quickly and so refining itself that we start running into devices and information showing that these uh, uh, things, these policies, these things that we have established, such as abortion after after a heartbeat is found, that now we're finding heartbeat much earlier in the stage of birth and conception. Five and a half weeks after conception, they're, they're sensing it. I think that's pretty amazing. While there is no specific use of the word abortion in scriptures, I think there are many passages that we can understand God's purposes and his commands and what his his intent is. In Psalms 139, if you turn there with me, we'll be there for a minute. This is a very commonly used passage to argue that life begins at conception. Five and a half weeks earlier than the picture that we saw, the video that we saw. In this chapter, David is speaking and says in verse 13, 
For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I read a brief article recently while I was preparing for this message by Jared Moore, who's a pastor and Arthur and is currently attending the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in uh, Kentucky. And his article was entitled, The Bible is Clear, Abortion is Murder and Needs to be Stopped. And in it, Jared states in his description of this passage of Psalm 139, um, that the use of the word, the Hebrew word golem, in the verse 16, where it is translated into English as unformed substance, in our in our uh, English Standard Version we're using, some of your uh, translations may say unformed body, which is the same thing, is probably the only direct reference to a human embryo in scriptures. He makes the observation that neither David nor God treated David in the womb as a mere fetus. David referred to himself in the womb as me and I in verses 13, 14, and 15. Take a look at the usage there. That's how he's addressing himself. Even as a human embryo being formed by God, David says that he was being fearfully and wonderfully made. The fertilized egg, the embryo, is being fearfully and wonderfully made as much as the full-term baby before birth. A pastor from Texas once said that the only difference between a baby in the womb and a baby outside the womb are age and location. There are a few other passages in the Old Testament that generally speak on children and being God being the creator, such as Psalms 127, 3-5, that says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Or Psalms 22.10 that says, On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have seen, you have been my God. Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. In Job 31.15, Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Uh, 
I kind of thought of a story in the New Testament, uh, trying to think of bringing up something in the New Testament that it might uh, uh, support this. And the, I think one of the best examples that I came up with was the story of Elizabeth and Mary in the first chapter of Luke. Mary had had her encounter with the angel and was told that she was going to conceive by the Holy Spirit and have a son. Mary became pregnant by the Holy Spirit's creative action that did not include sexual relationship and she is to bear a son who will be called the Son of the Most High. After receiving this message, Mary visited her cousin Elizabeth, who is already six months pregnant. And as soon as Mary entered the, womb, the room that Elizabeth was at, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped with joy. Do you remember that story? Two things that jumped out at me here. First, that a six-month-old child in the womb is called by scriptures as a baby. And that baby has emotions. In this case, joy. And second, that the, new, the unborn child acknowledged the presence of life in Mary. Even though this is presumably very early after conception. And this other child sensed that life. There's much more that we can look at this morning, but time is short. Can't possibly go through all the various texts that might apply. Hopefully you've marked down a few of these passages. If not, I'd be glad to share them with you again so you can go back home and look into them further. One of the things that I, I know I have repeated a number of times over the years is that our hope is that you don't just hear what we tell you that Scripture says and take that as the truth without testing us yourself by going to Scriptures and studying it yourself and determine if, in fact, what we're saying is accurate. I know when I grew up, I and started becoming a young man and, and, and involved with my own family and, and figuring out uh, how Christianity is going to fit into our own family. One of the things I started realizing is that most of my beliefs in Scripture and the understanding of Scripture came from the pulpit. It came from the pastor or the preacher that I was under at the time. And I hadn't really done very much studying on my own. And I think that's a dangerous position to be in. Normal for a child in that position. But as an adult, it's dangerous for you to do that. To just listen and accept. You've got you to gotta study on your own. Seek the answers yourself. I encourage you to read those passages again. And see if you agree with my conclusions that all human life is precious to God. And that that includes a child developing in the womb.
So if there is anyone here this morning who may have had an abortion in the past, I don't know your past. All of us have secrets. All of us have things that have happened to us in the past for whatever reason. And we don't condemn you for that in the sense of, of something you've done in the past that you need to deal with between you and God. But maybe you have, have had an abortion in your past. Or maybe you've been one of those people who worked in an office that was involved in the abortion industry. I can't imagine that if you're not here today, if you're here today and that has happened in your past, that there is not some grief and despair that is in your life because of what took place. I would assume that There's probably even some that maybe you weren't personally involved in something, but you know someone in your family or extended family or at work that may have gone through something like this. Just keep in mind what a a very heavy burden it would be to bear for someone to come to the realization that what they did was taking a life of a child they maybe they fell for the the uh the foolish comments that doctors and politicians and the feminist movement has served to them over the years that it was just a fetus it wasn't a child yet you're okay but after looking at some of the things we've seen today um, i don't know how you could you could agree with that any longer But I want to offer to you, if there is someone here today in that position, the hope and peace that comes through Jesus Christ. King David committed two very big sins in his life, if we were to try to qualify them. He committed adultery, and then he had the husband of the woman murdered so he could have her as his own. When you read the account of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11, it's a horrible story of a man who lusted after another man's wife and committed murder in the most devious of ways to achieve satisfying his own desires. Yet in Psalm 51, David has been convicted of his sins and had come to an understanding how horrendous his sin was against God. In this psalm, David accepts full blame for his actions and begs for divine forgiveness that only God can grant. While he sinned against the persons of Bathsheba and Uriah, he acknowledges that his ultimate crime is against God and his law. God forgave and restored David. And God offers you the same forgiveness and restoration today. If you were responsible for the taking of a child's life in your past, confess it to God, repent of it, come to Him, ask for forgiveness, 
And as he forgave David, he will forgive you. You can ask God to help you to gain peace and comfort with this past decision. If this represents you this morning and you want to talk and pray with someone, grab me after the service and I will be glad to do that with you or I can get one of the ladies to to meet with you. But don't leave today without beginning the process of addressing that past sin. But this is not the unforgivable sin. Unless it's not confessed and repented of. There's hope in Jesus Christ. And then the last group that I'd like to talk to is the rest of us who maybe haven't been involved in the abortion industry. Maybe we haven't had any involvement with an abortion in our past or family members. How does that affect us? What do we do, the rest of us? This is a horrible thing that takes place in our country and in our world. What are we supposed to do about it? Just being an individual sitting here in the pew in Redwood Christian Fellowship in Little Fortuna, California. As Christians, we are to be about the business of reaching the loss around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're left here for. That's our, our, our job, our commandment. We're not only his image bearers, but we are his ambassadors. In 2 Corinthians 5, we're told by Paul that we are not to just try to be God's ambassadors, but that we are God's ambassadors. Like it or not, you already have the role. Verse 16 of chapter 5 says, For now... From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Be rec- or God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If we have been reconciled through Christ to himself, then we must be given, we were given the message of reconciliation, the gospel message, which we are now responsible to be sharing with those around us. And that includes to those who may have dealt with abortion in their past, in whatever capacity. If you're ever given the opportunity to share the gospel with someone who's contemplating abortion or someone in the medical field that may be involved in that industry, be an ambassador for Christ to them. Tell them what Jesus Christ has done for you. Give them the hope 
that you have in Jesus. We should always be looking for opportunities to take stands for life, not just against the abortion industry, but euthanasia and other ways that it's coming about throughout the world governments in in putting the end of of life to the elderly or to the sick or to uh, allow people to take their own lives with medical help so that it's less painful or whatever the excuses they are using. Life is precious to Jesus and it should be precious to us. Look for opportunities to take stands for life. Contribute and give towards the Pregnancy Crisis Center. We have one here in Eureka. We we just did, uh, I think in April, the uh, uh, the crib where we were collecting diapers and wipes and various things that they need. That's a tool that's in our community to help people see exactly what we were talking about, that that child in your womb is a living human being and that there are other options. We have an opportunity as a church and you as individuals and your families to be involved in these. Maybe by giving, maybe by volunteering there, maybe by getting some pamphlets or making sure you have their number available to share with someone that might come in your path that is is looking at this as an option. You could contact your state and federal representatives. I know in California we almost immediately go... What's the point? But you know what? It's still our responsibility to do it. Reach out to them. Contact them to persuade them to protect children. And have some knowledge of what's available in our community so that if someone asks, you have an answer. So there are things that we can do. I hope that you think of those before someone comes and asks you. Uh, Don't don't wait. Uh, Be involved. And of course, we can always pray for our country, especially since we keep hearing a lot of these laws that are coming to the Supreme Court level. We may have an opportunity to overturn the past um, court decision. That we pray that maybe that will take place. But I, I caution you in that. In the sense that de- we depend upon the Supreme Court to make that decision because they've already made the decision once and what do we get? If we depend upon these men and women that represent us in the courts to make the decisions for us, we can't, we can't trust that they will do what they really should do. Just as easy as they make a decision to, to, to overturn Roe versus Wade in another court, they could come back again. So, but we can pray. Pray that God is active, that God is, is changing hearts and, and changing the decisions of these people. So. Well, I hope that some of this was helpful to you. Sorry for my voice and the coughing occasionally and the things that are there. If you have questions or if you want any of these references, let me know and I'll be glad to share them with you. Let's close in prayer and then we'll uh, have communion together. Father, we ask that you will 
bring the killing of children, especially by abortion, to an end in our country and in our world. We pray for forgiveness for this great sin carried out in our country for whatever reason that we may give and how we may try to justify it. We ask that you'll help us to look for opportunities to be ready to take action, to encourage the sanctity of life, and to try to guide those around us to look to you for their hope and strength. We thank you for your word and for your Holy Spirit and for teaching us and pray that you help us to be worthy of the calling that you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. The worship team will come forward. We'll pass out the elements. Uh, Please hold them and we'll take communion together. I guess I have to go in the back.